Welcome to this episode of Mission Business, a podcast about good business for those in the business of good, presented by your part-time controller, LLC, also known as YPTC. My name is Jennifer Oliva, the host of Mission Business and managing partner at YPTC. This is the second part of a two-part episode all about the business of nonprofit regulations. I spoke with Josh Studor and Beth Short of NASCO, the National Association of State Charity Officials, an association of state offices charged with the regulation and oversight of charitable organizations and charitable solicitation in the United States. In this episode, we discuss fundraising trends, conflict of interest, and other compelling stories about their work. And now the continuation of my conversation with Josh and Beth. So now I want to turn our attention to a topic near and dear to all of our nonprofit hearts is fundraising and talk about some of the trends in fundraising that you're seeing. And I'll I'll let Josh answer this. Oh, that is a big topic. So (laughs) I think obviously the biggest trend is the use of crowdfunding and the use of internet platforms to be able to raise money. It's just the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are a variety of challenges that can go along with that, both practically, but also legally. And I can tell you that almost every state, if not every state, is looking at how to deal with that type of fundraising. I know California is probably the prime mover in this area, but uh, every other state is looking at it too. That's the biggest change in the industry that, that I've seen. Obviously, there's things like NFTs and other mm. like high tech <laughs> things that I don't really want to learn about. Can we go back to the crowdfunding? What's an organization to do? You could get donations from a variety of different states. You're putting a solicitation out on, say, uh, Facebook or any kind of social media platform. What's an organization supposed to do? Are they supposed to file in every state that they're receiving a donation from? That's such a big question and <laughs> one that's very relevant to my practice this week. There's something called the Charleston Principles that were developed by the states that participate in NASCO. And it essentially outlines how states should go about dealing with this particular issue. And I like to think about it as the question of if mom and pop animal rescue in Kansas receives a donation from a donor in Washington, do they have to register in Washington even though they didn't actively solicit anybody in Washington state. And the Charleston principles generally answer no, because they didn't intend to solicit Washingtonians. Mm -hmm. So in the case of crowdfunding, it is definitely a different animal. Sometimes there's crowdfunding sites that will let you limit the geographic area that you couldn't receive donations from. But for the most part, we're talking about nationwide and maybe even worldwide solicitation. Mm. So review the Charleston principles, just Google that, look at what it says. And uh, while this is not legal advice (laughs) in any way, you're going to be pretty, you're going to be pretty safe most of the time. So the primary thing is if you're directing a solicitation at individuals rather Mm -hmm. than passively having a donate button, that's going to be a big part of it. And if you're regularly receiving large donations from a state, you should be registered in that state. Okay. So the the question of where you should register based on where you're soliciting 
donations from and then where you are receiving donations from. I love the idea of checking out the Charleston principles, but also check with your attorney. If you are soliciting donations or receiving donations from multiple states, it's a really good idea to have an attorney review all of that and ensure that you're registered in the proper states. And frankly, folks can pick up the phone and, and call a regulator's office. Most of us are pretty happy to have conversations. Um, we're nice people, actually, despite the fact that we're regulators. <laughs> I can um, tell that. <laughs> don't overlook that. I want to add on to Josh's example about fundraising issues and, you know, the big wide internet and IT and technology. It's opened up all kinds of ways for people to raise money. Some mm -hmm. are problematic. In the state of Ohio, for instance, it would be illegal to use online roulette wheels oh. and other sorts of gambling type activities to raise funds for your charity. So you could be walking into criminal gambling issues, which we have wow. no authority to enforce. Local law enforcement does. So mm -hmm. when you're going to be taking big steps into previously unexplored areas, um, you might want to check out whether you're walking into Absolutely. some unexpected problem areas. Yeah. Games of chance always bring up lots of questions for our clients, whether it's a raffle, but online brings up a whole new uh, set of issues. Thanks for bringing that up. How about point of sale? This is not online, but when you're at the CVS and they said, oh, would you like to donate a dollar to a local charity or a national charity? What kind of issues are you finding there, Josh? Yeah, so that was the definitely the next area I was I was going to talk about. We're seeing like large corporations in particular soliciting donations for a charity of some kind right at the point of checkout. So we call those point of sale solicitations. And um they can be particularly effective and really great. I know I'm interested in rounding up my bill the extra 50 cents or whatever to yeah. to help a food bank. But at the same time, you can run into regulatory problems in a variety of ways. The first one, and it's probably the biggest concern that I have, is that if there's an exchange for something of value that the charity mm -hmm. is giving to the uh, for-profit to engage in this fundraising, that creates a situation where the grocery store could become a commercial fundraiser where they've received hmm. something of value to solicit on behalf of the charity. Now, we'd have to look at the individual transactions to see how that actually plays out, but you could create that situation. An interesting question for me is whether or not something of value includes customer information. So if this, mm. I'll just keep using the grocery store example, if this grocery store is collecting customer data to be able to then use it to advertise to that customer or to advertise to people like that customer, then that's something of value. And there's mm. a possibility that you find yourself as a commercial fundraiser just by receiving that. So those are two big things. The other thing is that a lot of states, including Washington, have regulations in place related to what type of disclosures need to be on a solicitation. And that can mm -hmm. include things like the credit card machine where you swipe. There needs to be a, a clear statement about where that donation is going, whether the charity is registered in the state where they're soliciting. And sometimes, you know, there's even more that's required by the statutes. Yeah. I think two things on that. This is the equivalent 
of the little bucket, the the penny bucket next to uh, the cash register on your way out where people will put their extra change. But those disclosures were required then, and now they're still required. And the second point is that donors ought to be aware, too, of who they're giving to and understand that these issues exist. That's exactly right. And sometimes a solicitation may say, give to grocery store fund X, and they don't really tell you, the donor, what that fund is going to be used for. And I've seen instances where that fund is actually used to help employees who need to pay their rent last month or something like that. And I'm serious, like, there can be bailout funds essentially for their employees, and that's what you're donating yes. to. So really what you're donating is a way for the business to underpay their staff. And so that's something <laughs> oh, you gosh. should be on the lookout for yes. if you're a donor. Yeah, is it a legit uh, nonprofit that you're donating to or is it just part of the general operations of the business? That's right. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mission Business Podcast. My name is Carol Melvin, and I'm a senior manager and leader in YPTC's Washington, D.C. office. YPTC is currently hiring nationwide. We offer a flexible work environment, 35-hour standard work week, perks and incentives, full benefits, as well as full and part-time positions to fit your needs. The best part? You can use your accounting skills for good and directly impact the success of amazing nonprofit organizations. At YPTC, we know that a career is not one size fits all. We are dedicated to a workplace guided by trust, support, education, integrity, equity, community, and strong relationships. YPTC is consistently recognized for its strong and employee-focused culture. Most recently, we appeared on Inc. Magazine's Best Places to Work list and ranked second in Accounting Today's Best Accounting Firms to Work For. So what's next? Are you ready to love your job? Apply today on YPTC.com or contact careers at YPTC.com. We can't wait to meet you. So I want to turn the conversation to enforcement. What are some of the recent enforcement actions that you have been seeing? I know you can't talk about current cases, but you can talk about just recent ones that you've wrapped up. Yeah, so I'm uh, happy to share a couple, try to keep it brief, but they're a little juicy. So (laughs) one of the cases that I dealt with, probably first thing actually when I joined the unit, was uh, State versus Roy Bronson Howder. So Roy Howder was a executive director of four charities and nonprofits. He was also the owner of a telemarketing center and the owner of a publishing company. And his son was the owner of a call center that operated out of the father's building. So uh, what we ended up having was a entirely insular exchange of funds where the charities really had no charitable purpose. They occasionally sent some gift cards to Head Start programs and asked the mm-hmm. Head Start programs to like, please buy back to school supplies for kids. And that was the extent of what mm-hmm. they did. Yeah. But what they would tell the consumer they would do by first calling them and then sending them solicitations in the mail and then receiving, they'd receive the donation back. They'd say, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to, take kids on a shopping spree to be able to let Mm. them buy their own stuff. Or we're going to get a bunch of wrapped gifts together and give those to kids at Christmas time. 
any number of other activities that they've claimed they're doing, even though they never actually engaged in those. We sued the whole batch of organizations, the for-profits, the non-profits, the individuals, everybody involved, and said, look, you've engaged in deceptive solicitation. Mm -hmm. You've misused charitable assets. You've breached your duties as directors and, and officers. And all of the organizations just need to shut down. Mm -hmm. As we went through discovery, we learned that the nonprofits were all paying rent to the dad, you know, to Roy Howder. They were all run out of his office at home, that he was the one publishing all of the quote unquote educational material that would go out as a part of their their charitable mission. And then the fundraising was all done by his son's telemarketing firm. So it was oh, great. all just charitable donations that were funneled directly into this family for their so, general living expenses. Yeah. Conflicts of interest abounding. How was the investigation started? Was there a whistleblower or? Yeah, it is really interesting how these cases come to us. They come in so many different ways. And yes, we get whistleblowers. But in this particular instance, what we had were complaints from consumers because they'd get these really sketchy looking mm. donation receipts in the <laughs> mail. And they'd say, wait, this doesn't look right. And so they'd have these questions. And in that particular instance, there was contact to the postal inspector in the region who then contacted mm -hmm. us. We had uh, complaints directly from consumers. And then our colleagues over at the Oregon Department of Justice, their charity division, also had complaints from their citizens who had been receiving these solicitations and they sent them to us as well. So it was kind of a combination of all those things when we realized, oh, yeah. there's a critical mass here. We're going to have to do something about yeah. it. When you see something, say something. That's the takeaway for the consumer too. the donors that see maybe I'm going to actually question right. where I'm sending this money. And if it doesn't seem right to call their state regulators. Beth, anything to add? Do you have a story or two? Well, I do want to point out that we all spend um, some effort trying to talk about wise giving mm. and encouraging people to be curious before they agree to write a check to a charity. And many times our senior citizens, maybe yes. through telemarketing, direct mail, other sorts of solicitation efforts, often feel bullied into making a gift. That's never okay. You know, even my own mother-in-law, who died several years mm -hmm. ago, she made a lot of charitable contributions to organizations that if any of us had spent any amount of time looking at their accomplishments, which were quite meager, um, mm -hmm. we would have decided that wasn't a good candidate for our charitable investment. So we finally got to a point where she would call me before she would write a check to a charity and say, Beth, can <laughs> I write a check to Veterans Helping Other Smiling Veterans, Inc.? And I'd say, no, let's <laughs> skip that one. Or Beth, can I write a check to Salvation Army? Um, yes, that one's fine. Yeah. And so we want people to take those charitable gifts seriously, mm -hmm. realizing that there are lots of great organizations out there doing wonderful work, but there are limited charitable resources. And so make sure that they're going to where you think they're going and they're going to be used in the way you think they're going to be used. I just tell people that with dealing with my mother-in-law, mm -hmm. develop a giving plan in advance where you know what kind of charities you want to support in the coming year. And so then if you get a call from somebody 
You can say, well, it's not on my giving plan this year, but if you send me some information, I'll think about it next year. Or just don't give to groups that you've never heard of. Right. You know, talk to family and friends. Have you heard about this organization making a difference in the community? Mm -hmm. And do they spend a major portion of their money on actually helping veterans in the community or do they spend most of their money on fundraising expenses and general management Mm -hmm. expenses? Mm -hmm. The U.S. Supreme Court's been very firm on the issue about, you know, there's no minimum amount required for program service expenses, nor can we, you know, require people to make disclosures in advance about how much is spent on fundraising. And please don't mistake me, there is absolutely nothing wrong with spending money on fundraising or management expenses. In fact, we would be concerned if people weren't spending money on that. But when you have limited resources, do you want to spend your money supporting a group where only 8% of the money might actually be helping veterans? Or would you prefer to invest your limited charitable resources on a group that spends 60% on program service expenses? So those are some of the decisions that being a wise donor Mm -hmm. causes you to have to address. And there may well be great reasons to explain why one group's expenses are higher than another. You need to know that to be able to make a sound decision about who you want to support. Absolutely. And Beth, what are some of the punishments that if a charity is found guilty or does something wrong in Ohio, what are some of the punishments that could happen to them? Just like Josh was outlining, we get complaints every day of the week in our office from members of the general public, uh, sometimes clients of charities, employees of charities, even board members. Mm-hmm. And they let us know about things that they think just aren't quite right. We also do license bingo in our office. And so sometimes we get a lot of complaints about mm-hmm. they were not polite to me last week <laughs> at Tuesday night bingo. That complaint gets a far different level of attention than someone who says, I've been on the board for a year. I continually ask the executive director and treasurer for reports, and they refuse to share financial information. That is going to pop up as a giant red flag. And so we have compliance examiners, accountants, investigators, and lawyers, and they take a look at what's going on. And Sometimes we find there's no validity to what's been alleged and we you know, are happy to close that complaint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other times we might find an organization where while what's alleged doesn't look likely to have happened, but what we have found is a group that doesn't have their board governance practices up right. to par and we will spend technical support and attention trying to get them to where they should be able to operate more safely into the future. So regulators, teachers as yes. well. And is this, you have a name for the university they go to? Um, We're in the midst of developing a new program called Charitable University, where it's going to be split into a number of modules in a number of major categories. We're trying to help good people do good things the right way by providing resources and guidance so that they don't find themselves in hot water. Um, Sometimes we have to file suit and we file Mm. suit to recover funds that have been inappropriately spent. We'll file suit to remove certain people from a board And we'll file suit to sometimes close down an entire charity Mm -hmm. that we think is far more interested in capitalizing on the generosity Mm -hmm. of others than living up to the goals of their mission. And then sometimes we're also involved in working with local law enforcement and prosecutors on Mm -hmm. prosecutions related to what we might discover. So the actual end story of what happens in any of our cases can be quite varied. And it it all depends, which is no one's favorite answer to any question. That's right. 
it truly right. does depend it's on true. what seems to make the most sense. I do have a story to add to this conversation about board governance, sure. though, and what could possibly happen. Yes, so please. There's an organization out of Tacoma, Washington, that was put together years ago to help veterans who were suffering from mental illness or substance abuse or chronic homelessness and bring them up by either providing them jobs or job training uh, and providing housing. And so they received grants. They received some work from large corporations in the area to be able to do that. And for many years, they provided this service you know, pretty well. And they brought quite a few people mm-hmm. out of poverty and out of homelessness. We started looking into this organization when some complaints went to some other areas of our state, as well as to our local uh, NBC affiliate, who then did mm. their own investigation and reported on it. And of course, as soon as we saw their investigation, we looked into it as well. And what was going on was all of the board members had left, with the exception of two Mm -hmm. gentlemen in their later stages of life. And they had relied almost exclusively on a single person who, as their executive director and Mm -hmm. as the person responsible for all of their money and hiring and rents Mm -hmm. and mortgages and really everything, she had complete control over the books. She also was a convicted felon for theft by deception and fraud. And she, (laughs) just before starting at that particular nonprofit, she had worked for a different nonprofit where she was accused of uh, defrauding and stealing from that organization. So when we looked into it, we learned that this person was using the funds as a piggy bank for herself and she was paying Mm -hmm. her own rent and her own utilities and more problematically i think was using charitable funds at local casinos and she lost excellent hundreds of thousands of dollars at local casinos so we (laughs) after doing an analysis we figured out it was in the three million dollar range of damages that she caused to this organization including taking out mortgages on transitional housing that was supposed to be used for veteran services. Uh, Well, we sued her, the organization, and then the two board members. And as much as I didn't want to have to sue the board members, this was a circumstance Mm -hmm. where they were completely asleep at the wheel and they were the only ones that could have been responsible for this person's conduct. They could have stepped in. They could have made sure that she stopped doing this. And... They had advanced knowledge uh, that there were allegations of misconduct. And so and they didn't act on that. You know, the story kind of has a happy ending. We got a receiver appointed. The receiver managed Mm to recover some funds. And and our lawsuit ended up recovering a million dollars from an insurance claim. But we recovered a million dollars that we were able to then give back to the veterans who weren't getting paychecks. The organization Mm -hmm. itself is dissolved. It's been subsumed by a different group altogether. And then the executive director fled the state (laughs) to Alabama. And uh, we don't don't know what she's doing now. But uh, how did you know she was a convicted felon? You were able to just do a a quick background check, I assume. Yeah, yeah. She was actually on community release uh, when she was hired by that first nonprofit. And the fact that the new nonprofit didn't look into that is is pretty questionable. Yes, really questioning the duty of care. We tell our clients all the time we preach, everyone should have a full background check, uh, anyone that's working for you. Yeah, that's not to say that people who had committed felonies can't 
do a good job and be rehabilitated. Yes. And even people who've committed crimes like theft by deception, like her, as long as mm-hmm. there's appropriate supervision of that person, then I don't see any reason why you wouldn't like why you couldn't bring somebody on yeah. board, especially in an organization that helps rehabilitated felons. Right. It, yes. re- you know, hiring a felon makes sense in that circumstance, but a board still Absolutely. has the obligation to oversee what's going on. That's the real you know, shame in that, you know, just the regular checks and balances, as we discussed before, that need to be in place. Right. So everyone knows that uh, things are transparent. If I could throw in a related yes. thought, one of the things those of us in the charitable sector do is we may have a problem that develops with a particular employee, for instance, and rather than filing a criminal complaint when there's been a theft, we're afraid that our donors may find out that somehow that will hurt our organization. And so we elect not oh, to say nothing, to yes. do nothing, and this person goes away. Well, what happens far too often then is they end up at another charity yeah. and are able to do the exact same thing again. Background checks can be helpful, but checking out references can be extraordinarily important because of what we seem to do within the charitable sector. Whereas it may well be a better practice to have a firm, you know, zero tolerance policy that thefts will result in the filing of criminal complaints. And that in itself can have a prophylactic effect in preventing problems from popping up. For sure. This has been a great conversation and we're coming to the end of our time. So I wanted to wrap up with asking each of you, what's your best piece of advice for nonprofits to follow today? Please, 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 at least once a year, do kind of a checkup on your organization. At the beginning of your program year, take a look at your bylaws. Does everyone at the board table know what you've promised to do and how you operate it? Take a look at what your policies are. Do you have adequate policies? Does everyone know what it is? Who's going to take care of filing the 990? When does mm-hmm. budget planning start? Take a look at your internal controls. Have you changed your operations in any way that would require you to tweak some of your procedures. So if you do a checkup once a year, hopefully you'll just be adding little tune-up things as you go and the continuity of the organization will be eased over time and take time to do a basic review. Does everyone know what their obligations are to the organization and do you need to recommit yourself to a particular area each year? And you start the new year off in a healthier way that way. And each board committee could be looking at their own charter Are we following everything that we said we were going to do and talking to management and saying, hey, you were supposed to uh, have this policy and this policy, or we're supposed to do a review of this uh, on an annual basis and make sure that this is actually being done. Hey, Josh, what's your advice? So aside from seek counsel from an attorney, (laughs) (laughs) so what I would really like to see is for entities that work with vendors, they make sure that One, there's not internal conflicts, conflict of interest, but Mm -hmm. two, that they're looking at it for the context of market value and whether or not they're paying too much or maybe even too little for a particular service and whether that service is valuable to them. For example, if you have a commercial fundraiser and you've not looked at that contract for years, that contract may be not very good for you as a nonprofit. You may be paying way too much for that commercial fundraiser for what you're getting back. 
Another is, let's say you've been renting the same place for years uh, and yeah, moving is a hassle. But, you know, if they keep raising rents and you're just keep signing that lease without looking at the market value of that place, you may run the risk of not actually doing the kind of responsibilities it takes to run a nonprofit and run a business successfully. And especially if you're going to buy something or get a service from somebody that's a part of your organization, make sure there is a market evaluation on what you're paying that person. So if you Mm-hmm. Maybe go get quotes from multiple people regarding publishing. And if your member, your board member can provide that service for the same or less than these other people, go with them. But if they can't, then you're responsible for paying the market value for what you're getting. Great. So is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think I should have? I'm just grateful that you're willing to take time to talk with us. Again, we're regulators, and some people think regulators have no souls and that we're heartless people. And hopefully you were able to conclude that um, we're regular people and we're grateful for the work that goes on, making a difference in our communities. We value charities. We want them to be successful and dynamic. And that's what makes it even more important for board members to be doing the things that we've talked about. And so to the extent that we're able to help anyone in terms of moving in the right direction to make sure that their charity is going to be on a smooth track, thank you for creating that opportunity. You're very welcome. I think we're going to title this episode, Regulators Have a Soul. (laughs) I think it might be a draw. So yes, Regulators Have a Soul. Awesome. Josh, anything to add? I guess I just leave with the thought that we want charities to be able to succeed. We want nonprofits Mm -hmm. to be able to succeed. We want the charitable assets that are held by these organizations to be used for their charitable purpose. You, individual director, uh, executive director, do not own this charity. It's not yours. Even you founders, it's not your charity. It's the public's charity. These are held in public trust. And so regardless of what the purpose of the charity is, as long as it's for a charitable purpose, it's the role of the attorney general and the regulators and secretaries of state to make sure that those funds are being used the way they're supposed to be used. Keep that in mind as you're making decisions on behalf of the organization that you serve. Absolutely. So my takeaways are that you guys are terrific. Regulators have a soul and they're wonderful, helpful resources to nonprofits. NASCO can be a great resource for nonprofits and the public can take a lot of comfort knowing that there are people watching uh, and that nonprofits shouldn't be scared of the regulators, but they, they must be really responsible in their actions and what they do when they're running their organizations. So thank you guys so much for being here today on Mission Business Podcast. Sure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for the second part of a two-part episode of the Mission Business Podcast. We look forward to bringing you more stories of innovation and perseverance from nonprofits around the world. I want to thank the team at PWP Video for their guidance and assistance in the development and production of this podcast. They are a great partner for Media with a Mission, and you can find them at pwpvideo.com. Additional information about this episode can be found at missionbusinesspod.com. And follow us on social media at Mission Business Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at 
Mission BizPod on Twitter. I want to thank our guests for this episode, Josh Studer and Beth Short of NASCO. This podcast was produced by Erica Blair and Geraldine Dressler of your part-time controller, LLC. Dave Winston and Michael Schweizheimer are our producers from PWP Video, and the show was directed and edited by Pat Ganley. Again, I'm Jennifer Oliva, and we'll see you here next time on Mission Business Podcast, presented by your part-time controller, LLC.